Cody's right here, so. Oh, he topped Whoa. it. Cole topped it. Okay. Go. Yeah. Oh, he shanked it. Oh, look at that line, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, boy, is he on the sink. Welcome to the Bogey Boys podcast. You're joined here by Kevin and Mark, as always, and we've got a guest, the Pew Dog, Mr. Nick Pew. How's things, brother? It's all good, boys. Thanks for having me on. I'm uh, looking forward to it. No, thanks for joining, mate. We appreciate you taking the time to speak to us. What have you been up to? I believe you're back home in the UK at the moment. Um, yeah, I'm back in the UK just for a bit of an unexpected visit. Um, life on the road. Unfortunately, I got my uh, rental car broken into in San Francisco, and someone kindly relieved me of my passport, so... I had to fly back to the UK on a on an emergency passport and get a new one over in Liverpool uh, last week. So, yeah, just a quick pit stop. Thankfully, it coincided with me having three weeks off from the tour. So I had a chance to come home and get all that sorted. And then I'm flying back tomorrow afternoon, actually, and then straight over to Bermuda for the next PGA Tour event. Well, thanks for taking the time. Well, you've obviously got a day off, really, isn't it? And then you're, uh, <laughs> you're straight back at it. Life on the, life on the road. Um... Just a little bit of background information. Obviously, at the minute, you're currently caddying for Lucas Herbert, isn't it? Probably most of the listeners would have seen you on telly. But I think you stand out a little bit with that beard. Yeah, the beard's kind of become a bit of a uh, bit of a trademark, bit of a calling card. So um, I guess the, the decision was when I first started caddying, I, probably about five years ago, I, I stopped playing and competing myself. And um, as a professional golfer, you've got to keep a relatively clean image. So I was always relatively... Fresh, freshly shaven and then the minute I stopped sort of practicing and playing and competing myself I was like ah oh, what the hell I'll grow a bit of a beard and see how it goes and then um, actually within the first six months of caddying I was, I was working for a Malaysian golfer at the Malaysian Open in KL and um, he happened to be playing great on the first day he shot a first round 66 and my opium mug was all over the telly and, and the commentator was going on about my beard non-stop he was saying the magnificently bearded caddy and this that and the other and that was it my uh, my phone lit up and all my mates were texting me from back home and all around the world and so oh you've been on the telly everyone's talking about your beard and that's it it's kind of become a bit of a, a I wouldn't say a cult following but it's been uh, I've kind of kept it as a bit of a recognizable feature yeah if I make a really big mistake if I really mess up I can just shave it off and then no one will recognize me Belsa. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, obviously, when we when we have these podcasts and we talk to to people like yourself, obviously we like to get a bit of a backstory about obviously how you got into professional caddying and and, and where you where you are now, which we'll come on to in a bit. But just from yourself, are you a professional golfer still, or you've got your amateur status back? But just talk us through your, your your career. Yeah, so I I played golf from an early age. Um, went from just sort of knocking it about on the Wirral where I lived. I, I, I was a member at Arrow Park Golf Club and ended up working at Heswell Golf Club. Um, for a, a good period of time, sort of 11 years under under the tutelage of Alan Thompson, who's a really well-known coach. He works with yeah. um, Tommy Fleetwood. Lots of the, the lads who come up from the northwest of England. So I had a great grounding as a, as a professional golfer that way. Um, played a little bit myself, not, not particularly well, or certainly not now when I look back and, and look at the standard of boys that I'm caddying for. But um, yeah, cut my teeth playing for, for many years and then ended up in Asia. Um, my wife's a school teacher, so we ended up traveling around the world following her sort of job rather than mine. And um, I played for a bit in Asia, but again, didn't really make much of a success of that. Um, I've made far more money 
in the last couple of months caddying than I ever did for years and years playing myself. So um, came to the sort of hard realization that I wasn't good enough to play myself uh, about five years ago and got, got convinced to sort of do a bit of caddying by a couple of friends of mine who I caddied for initially. And then it just snowballed from there, really. I just kind of really enjoyed it. Started caddying on the Asian tour, um, working for a, you know, a, a young Thai lad called Jazz Jane Wetananand, and then that took me into Europe. And then from Europe, I sort of met you know, other players, and, and here we are now on the PJ Tour. It's, it seems like a whirlwind ride since sort of five years ago when I when I stopped playing golf myself. It's crazy. So when that Jazz, because Jazz Jay Wetanand's on the European Tour now, isn't he? So when you were caddying for him, he was on the, is in the Asian Tour, was he? I actually caddied for a... Um, the Malaysian lad I was talking about there and I was poached to sort of go and work for Jazz just for just for one week to go and fill in and help him out and we finished second in a tournament in Thailand um, the Queen's Cup and I thought oh this is pretty good you know I've got a nice little brown envelope full of cash for my, for my, for my pleasures <laughs> and um, we went from there yeah I started working for Jazz and we played in Asia he was very successful in Asia he's a hell of a golfer and then we went to European Q School over in Spain, and it, I remember it being freezing cold and awful, and I thought, oh no, Jazz isn't going to like this at all. And um, quite a bizarre story, which I'll fast forward into saying that um, Q School, as most people know, is a, a very long, arduous task. It was 108 holes of golf, six rounds, and Jazz actually chipped in on the 108th hole, the last hole of the tournament, for Eagle to get his European tour card. That was He had to make Eagle on the last hole, and he chipped in for Eagle. That's clutch, that. Yeah, <laughs> it's as clutch yeah. as it gets. Yeah, Definitely. he did that, and then we started playing in Europe a little bit. Um, I probably did about maybe six months or so with Jazz in Europe, and then started working for Lucas Herbert the first time around in Europe. Um, worked for a couple of players since then, and then gone back to Lucas at the start of this year. He's won on the European Tour this year, hasn't he? Was it the Irish Open he won? Yeah, correct. So I started again pretty much at the start of 2021. Um, sort of post-pandemic and well, post the, the sort of break that the European Tour had. Uh, we played a couple of events in Europe and then went over to America where we've played predominantly this year and then came back for basically Irish Open, Scottish Open and Open Championship. And yeah, it was you know, really good. One of my highlights to, to go and win in, in, in Ireland with him, which was a fantastic week. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I had a little look. He's 20th in the race to buy there. I know you say he's predominantly playing on the PJ Tour, but is the plan to to give the final events in Europe a go, is it? Yeah, for sure. Um, we kind of moved our attention across to America just to see whether he, he could get a PJ Tour card, which he managed to lock up during those Corn Free Tour finals. So he's now he now holds a PJ Tour card and a European Tour card, which is a you know good position to be in. But yeah, yeah, we haven't played we haven't played much in Europe this year, but he's managed to you know still hang on to that sort of top twenty on the on the race to Dubai. So we'll come back over. Uh, we're just talking about it at the moment, actually, potentially for the last two events in Dubai. Certainly, definitely the last event in Dubai, the DP World Championship. And yeah. it just depends on whether he gets a start in the Houston Open on the PJ Tour the week before, or whether we'll be in Dubai for the yeah, this the first event. Do you know the the standard of golf at the minute in like everywhere you look, so much depth to it, hasn't it? Like the Euro Pro twenty odd unders winning, like the standard on the corn ferry, because that's what Lucas came up through that, didn't he? Do you notice much difference yeah. between like the corn ferry and the European tour? Like because the these boys seem ready to win on the PJ tour straight away, don't they? Yeah, the the, the corn ferry tour is is a very very strong tour. I mean, yeah. it's um 
it's easy to look look at it as like a, a feeder tour for the PGA Tour, and that you know, the guys wouldn't be that good. But like you say, they 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 come off whether it be through you know uh, automatic qualification from the Corn Ferry Tour or, or through those three events at the end, those finals. Um, anyone that's playing on the Corn Ferry Tour is is pretty much ready to go on the PGA Tour straight away as soon as they they get the chance because so many of them are are good young collegiate players that are you know just busting at the gut ready to ready to go. So you see the guys like Colin Morikawa and Matthew Wolf and you know Victor Hovland and those guys they they come out of college and they're pretty much the finished product. They're already ready to go on the PGA Tour and ready to win, which is incredible when you think about it. You look back 10, 15 years ago and guys were sort of expected to do their apprenticeship and sort of spend five years you know playing their way up and being respectful of the big names on tour whereas now the young kids come out and they're just they're just trying to blow the leaderboard apart they're just trying to get out there and win yeah i don't know if you know the answer to this but what, what what would you put that down to do you think is it the college setup has upped its game or what is it the technology in golf is it more awareness of what's going on on the tours due to the video footage that you can see a lot more golf now what what do you put it down to the collegiate system's always been very strong. I mean, if you look at you know the, the the U.S. players, or not even just the U.S. players, but the guys who come through the collegiate system, you know, nowadays they're coming from all over the world. Um, you've got you know a huge amount of Asian players who are in the collegiate system, and 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 lots of Brits and everybody else, and they they come out of that collegiate system with a, a sort of a, a readiness. You know that they're, they're already used to playing in in big sort of seventy-two hole tournaments that's you know live on TV with tour trucks there and they're flying private jets to, to different venues because the you know some of the colleges are really big deals so they're kind of already a tour player while they're still in college you know they've, they're doing all the things that they're ticking the boxes they've got strength and conditioning coaches they've got mental coaches they've got you know almost um, equipment contracts sort of ready for them when they when they turn pro because they're they're that good already through college um, I think they're just yeah, it's a strength in depth thing. There's more and more of them, and those those collegiate yes. places, I imagine, are getting more and more competitive to get because you've got the foreign the foreign players coming across. And I think everyone around the world has seen that that has now become you know sort of the route to come through in professional golf. So um, it's only going to get stronger and stronger. It's going to be you know harder or not harder, but it's going to be more and more collegiate golfers making their way onto tours around the world. You know, in the future, I'm sure of it. Yeah, it seems like there's um because there's so much talent, and what Kev was mentioning there about the the strength and depth of the, of the tours, there's potentially room for another tour, isn't there? Really, when you think of the the quality that's out there. Yeah, I mean, you you obviously got PJ Tour, European Tour, um, the Asian tours taking a bit of a hammering, you know, during the COVID times because they just haven't been able to host events with you know, so many countries involved. Um, but then the Corn Ferry Tour, and there's, there's so many other mini tours around the world, whether it be the Euro Pros or the, the Alps Tour, or, you know, there's the, just, like you say, there's that much, there's that many golfers wanting to compete that all these little mini tours can spring up all over the place. So um, I think what will happen is the Corn Ferry Tour will just continue to grow in stature. And, you know, there's already talk of those prize funds, prize funds being increased and whatever. But yeah, you know, ultimately, this. Yeah, ultimately, there's still one tour where everybody wants to get to, and that's that's the PJ Tour. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what happens with the the Saudi money and and whether that you know really sort of strengthens the the Asian tour market and whether people start trying traveling back over there to play again. But um, yeah, there's just a lot of good golfers out there. But it's simple. Yeah, that's it. It's money turns heads as well, doesn't it? So if they come in with them big ten million prize funds, 
the reason people are the PJ Tour titles and it's in America now, but at the end of the day, the money's bigger than it. Yeah, I mean it. It's um, you know, the European Tour has been been through some sort of hard times recently with COVID and whatnot, and prize funds have been hit a little bit, you know, because of that. And and you've seen sort of a, I wouldn't say an exodus, but certainly a lot of the big talents, the the John Rams, the Tommy Fleetwoods, the you know, the majority of the the best golfers in the world have moved towards playing in in America more 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 often and yeah as crudely as you want to look at it it's it's where most of the money is being played for so that's when the money's there that's where the world ranking points are and that's where the best players go to and did that influence Lucas's decision to go to the corn Ferry or was his plan always to like try and get both and he's always just trying to play his way up so you, you yeah I don't think any golfer in the world would not be aiming to get on the PJ tour that's where exactly, yeah you know, that the, the best standard is and basically um herbie had got to the point earlier in the year where he was sort of inside the top 100 and and um you know felt like his game was his game was good enough to, and and trans transfers over to america pretty well you know he hits the ball a long way hits it up in the air great putter great short game those, those sort of attributes are pretty strong in america and it was just a case of how do we get a pj tour card you, you don't really want to have to spend an entire year on the Corn Ferry Tour playing for smaller prizes and you know, having to travel around America that way. So it's kind of a little cheat code, a bit of a fast forward that if, you, if you're if you eligible to play in those Corn Ferry Finals, you can turn up and play three weeks in a row and the top 25 from those three weeks will get you a card. So um, there's a, you know, a, few Amer- uh, sorry, a few European Tour boys there this year, Aaron Rye and yeah. Um, a couple of others who, who took advantage of that sort of fast track yeah, scheme, yeah. shall we say. Yeah, yeah, so we were fortunate that that first week in, in Boise, Idaho, um, we got up there in contention and we kind of knew that a top five um, in any of the weeks would probably pretty much wrap up a card for the PJ Tour and thankfully managed to birdie the 72nd hole and finish tied fourth. So we knew it was done in that first week, which was great. Obviously, where you finish in the top twenty-five, does that determine a category for next for for the PJ Tour? Does it? You get a better category. Yeah, so you're you're kind of in the same category as the guys who've come from Corn Ferry the previous year. They actually played like a rollover season, which was two years. Um, so number one on that order of merit over two years is is the is the top place in the category, and then the, the number one from the Corn Ferry Finals. And then two, and then two. So it kind of interlocks. So we finished 14th in that Corn Ferry finals, but that translates to 28th position yeah. on the the Corn Ferry ranking. Oh, right. um, and then you've got a chance to you know improve your ranking from a, a, a re-rank, which happens after Houston towards the end of the year. Um, but then Lucas is in a, a very strong position in that he's just outside the top 50 in the world at the moment as well. So um, that win in Ireland got him up to around the top 50 and we've kind of been around that point up until now so a good strong finish the year if you can if you can finish inside the top 50 in the world that also sort of helps you get into events like uh, the BGC memorial and the players and that yeah exactly yeah and and then obviously in some majors as well and those the money you can make in majors also counts towards your pj tour you know status so that's the, the goal now is to try and you know get lock up a full card for 2022 Two no, 2023 effectively, which is seems a long way in the future. But yeah, you're constantly just trying to improve your ranking wherever you are in the world, whichever tour you're on. Right, there's no coincidence here, or maybe it is. But Lucas birdied the 72nd hole. You said Jazz Jane eagled the 
108 hole. Like, as a caddy, there's got to be some part played in that way. You keep them calm or give them motivation. So it's time to blow your own trumpet, I think. <laughs> I mean, it's... Um... It's it's not about sort of just turning up on the on the last hole of the tournament any any other week. Look, you you do all your preparation, you do all your hard work before before the gun goes off on on the Thursday or whatever the first day of the tournament is, and then if you've if you've done you know as much as you can do and and everything's sort of playing out right, then you've got a chance to. I mean, hopefully you're not having to birdie the last hole to 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 get over the line or to to do whatever. But um, yeah, a lot of it is. And you have to be honest; it's out of your control. You just, you know, by the time you're playing that 18th hole for the fourth time or the sixth time or whatever, the yardage just don't change. The flag position changes, but it's it's more about hopefully having some kind of influence in in getting your player into the right place mentally throughout the week, so that yeah they never give up and they're and they're still willing to sort of try their hearts out you know for the entire for the entire tournament. But yeah, the the Q schools are hard. Q schools are really sort of different to a normal tournament in that they're, they're kind of marathon events and yeah you're just trying to keep your player sort of calm and, and realizing that it's a all the corny expressions that it's a marathon not a sprint and i remember yeah. a caddy caddy for an american player um last year johannes veerman same sort of story we went to q school for for european q school and he, he started the first two rounds i think 74 74 and he was you know way out of contention almost missed the cut and then battled back over the next four rounds and ended up getting a European tour card that way as well. So it, it's it's not always about birding the last hole to do it, but it's just it's more about keeping your player believing that, you know, even over this over the spell of eighteen holes, you just don't know what's around the corner. You can suddenly get hot for a streak and birdie three holes in a row. It might be the first three of the tournament. It might be, you know, three three on a Friday afternoon to make the cut. It might be the last three holes of the tournament to win the tournament you just don't know when you're going to get hot but if you keep doing the right things and ticking all the boxes and all the cheesy things you hear on tv about going through the process and you know doing all the, the right things um yeah maybe i'm just a lucky mascot i'm i'm, I'm around at the right time when guys <laughs> make birdies well you, you talk there about your preparation as well like obviously you're preparing for the, for the whole week so just talk us through what that looks like for yourself as a caddy bit of insight into to what what goes into your work in preparation for tournaments yeah i mean it, it's that's probably something that's changed um you talk about sort of collegiate players and strength and depth and that kind of thing that's, that's changing from the professional side i think the caddy world is changing massively as well it's you know the old adage of turn up keep up and shut up those sort of things aren't really valid anymore you're still expected to turn up and, and keep up but um caddies are doing a lot more a lot more work behind the scenes and than the average golfer probably realizes so yeah my week my week generally starts you know first thing monday morning if i'm i my ideal week is i get to the golf course before the player um lucas sometimes only travels in on a monday and i'm already at the golf course monday morning kind of walking around it and mapping out stuff we've got so much data and so much information at our fingertips now you've had a, a guest on already uh, tom boys who's a, a performance analyst and tom works really closely with with my team so i get a, a, a document before we even get to the, the golf course showing me how the course has played the previous year and places where you can hit it places where you can't hit it holes where you can take advantage of it gets down to the point where the scoring averages to certain pins and, and all the rest of it so I have a huge amount of information before I even walk onto a golf course if it's one that I haven't seen before. 
and generally I'll, I'll transfer all that information into a into a yardage book on Monday morning and then go and walk the course. So I'm armed with the sort of facts and figures first. And then it's just about getting as much information or getting as much knowledge of that golf course as quickly as you can. If it's one that you've played before, then you'll obviously recollect sort of things that have happened and how holes played and everything else. But even if you haven't been there before, with the amount of information that, that's available to us now, we can we can kind of devise a pretty solid plan um, before you even get anywhere near Thursday morning. So there's, yeah, I'll fast forward it in, in saying that there's a lot of hard work that goes on Monday, Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday. And then, you know, you, you sort of, the gun goes off on Thursday and you sort of react to what's happening then. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that as well. When you look at, we spoke, haven't we, about the, the improvements in golf. There's no surprise that the data that you can get now and how prepared you get your players. They've got all the tools available ready for them to, to shoot those low numbers, isn't it? And that's why you're seeing like an average of, I think, 10 under par is leading every tournament after the Thursday now every week. Whereas three, four, five years ago, 10 under, you'd be shocked, wouldn't you? It's... um. I mean, a lot of it's down to the, the the golf courses you play on. I mean, the first two events we played on the PJ Tour, I was actually probably a little bit surprised at how gettable the golf courses were. They were I'm not going to say they were easy, but they you know you could see how the scores could be made. Um, yeah. But then you also you'll also turn up at a course like the Honda Classic, um, or or the the Jack Nicklaus Tournament at the Memorial, and, and as soon as you step onto certain golf courses, you you kind of know. Well, hang on a minute, this is a bit different. No one's shooting 25 under par around this place this week. You know, you can see how they're set up in a certain way. Um, but yeah, it's just strength and depth. There's just a lot of good golfers, and and like you know, like we just talked about there, you're turning up with all the information that you could possibly have, um, and with with the best sort of information there that will help your player shoot as low a score as they possibly can. Yeah, I did see on, on uh, 2019 the ISPS hands away. There was an instant where you had your bag over your, over your head for for a full hole. Just talk us through that story and what happened there. Yeah, so that was I worked for Herbie for sort of six months back in 2019, um, and that was that was down in Australia, I think, for the. Um, oh, yeah, you just mentioned the tournament just then, the ISPS. Yeah. So we, yeah. we were playing a it was it was a. It was over two golf courses and it was a practice round or maybe it was the pro-am actually on, on one of the courses. And um, yeah, I'll hold my hands up. I gave him a completely bum yardage on a par three. I th- it was it was during a practice round, so I probably wasn't paying quite as much attention. And uh, he hit this beautiful eight iron straight down the flag and it came up like 20 yards short of the green. And he kind of <laughs> scratched his head scratched his head and looked at me and I looked at him and looked at my yardage book. I was like, oh yeah, oh, we're not on that tee box. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> my bad that was my punishment that was my punishment was to walk with the golf bag over my head for the length of the hole so thankfully um i don't have to do that punishment very often during tournaments i haven't done that at all during a tournament but um yeah that was just a bit of fun just to sort of punish a, a mistake on my behalf we've had a couple of caddies on and we always ask like we had um chris rice who's on harold van the third we've had the european tour uh, richard mansell's caddy we always yeah. ask, like, what's the best howler that you've had? Like, have you had any, like, proper howlers? Like, obviously that one, but have you had any others where you've just thought, what has just happened? Yeah, I mean, it's something that you've got to be so conscientious and so good with numbers. And, and just, for me, it's just all about being organised. Like, the European Tour do it a lot, but the, the PGA Tour do it just as much where they'll just completely move a tee box you know, overnight. And if you're not on your game and if you haven't made a note of 
which tee box you went off on Thursday, which tee box you went off on Friday. It's very easy to mix those things up. So um, it's just, yeah, you've got to be super on your game and, and super focused. And and for me, it's um, an old an old coach of mine, old Australian coach called Andrew Argus once said to me, um, a blunt pencil is better than a sharp memory. So I literally write down everything, whichever tee box we played off every day of the week, whether it be Monday or, or Sunday, because you play all turn around and you say, oh, we're on the same tee boxes yesterday and I hit two iron down here. So they just reach for the two iron. You go, whoa, 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 hang on a minute. We were two tee boxes further back yesterday. You know, we need to hit X, Y or Z. So at least if you write everything down like that, you generally avoid those things. So howler wise, I think I'm going to shoot myself in the foot now and I'm going to end up dropping the bag in Bermuda on the first hole or something. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure I'm sure one of my players will, will, will be frantically, you know, calling in to say to the I've done a howler, but I don't think I've done anything too bad. I'm pretty good at not dropping the towel. I'm pretty good at not leaving clubs behind. Um you know, there's just certain protocol that you follow, i.e. counting your clubs at the start of the round and making sure you've got them all and and yeah, I mean, you, you learn as you go, and you do make mistakes, of course. But it's better that you know, haven't got a howler, like. But we just like we just like <laughs> to get them. Like I think we had one fella said that he, he there was a shot under the tree over water, like par five, two forty into wind, and he was encouraging to go for it when it was always a chip out. And he's like, yeah, and he nearly got sacked on the spot. Just excited like, to be there, yeah, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah. First hole, <laughs> first hole of a new season. He was like, you've got an eagle at first. Uh, it's oh. very, very easy to get pulled along and get sort of drawn into that enthusiasm, especially if you're a really aggressive, enthusiastic sort of player yourself or, or, or have been, then it can be easy to get pulled into that. But I'm quite data driven and numbers driven. So I, I tend to be, you know, hopefully the, the sort of steady, the steady rock within that sort of decision making process. There was there was a, a moment that's just occurred to me now we were, we were playing at um, at the, uh, it wasn't called the English Open. What was it? It might be the English Open at um, Hillside a couple of years ago. And I was carrying for Herbie in 2019. And we'd hit it way right on one of the holes up on the like the big grass sort of you know banks. So we sort of hightailed our way up there and we found the ball. I think it might took a free drop out of, uh, off this cart path and whatnot. And then Herbie hits his second shot and off we go after it. And I was walking down this... Um, sandbank i want to say really as i'm walking down there it's it's been pissing down with rain all morning and i've got i've got a brand new mint pair of white gore-tex adidas trainers on and they're so good but they're white and it's not very clever in the in the rain and the and the mud and everything else and i just slipped and fell on my arse and slid all the way down this this sand dune <laughs> um literally just like bouncing my way down with the clubs behind me and I managed to jump up and unfortunately Tommy Fleetwood was playing behind us um, in like one of the marquee groups. So there was like several hundred people, if not thousands, stood <laughs> along the side of the fairway and I've just gone down on my arse. So I managed to jump up and sort of put my thumbs up and say, hey, that was the quickest way down the down the hill. <laughs> we, we hightailed it up to find his ball and we actually couldn't find his ball. We lost it. Had to come back to the original point where we just hit off the top of these sand dunes dropped another ball, whacked that one up by the green. And as I walked down this sand dune, I kind of thought to myself, oh, it'd be a bit stupid to fall down here again. And I fell on my ass again, <laughs> slid down the same sand dune <laughs> and actually cra crashed into the golf cart that was waiting for us with a referee on it. And um, jumped up and 
yeah, much to my embarrassment, I actually fell over three times on that one hole. So oh my God. That's, probably God. A, that's probably a blooper. I mean, white Gore-Tex trainers weren't white anymore. They were absolutely ruined. So they ended up going in the wash <laughs> and then not being worn again. But, uh, that is exactly what I was looking for with that question. <laughs> other than falling over, thankfully, I think if you make any really serious bloopers as far as like yardages and stuff like that go, I think they're, they're usually less comical and they end up in you either being fired or, or very heavily, um, having, you know, a very serious word being had with you. So the funny ones are usually stuff with falling over and forgetting things as opposed to making massive mathematical errors or decision-making errors. Yeah. Well, on the on the other end of the spectrum, um, we we always ask the caddy as well. Are there any times where you've stepped in and took a club or swapped a, a decision or said stop and where it's actually like a, a like a hero sort of um, move? I mean, it's it's kind of a I don't want to say it's a daily occurrence because you don't ever want to be in a position where you're battling with your player and and sort of fighting them to make good decisions. You know that the longer you work with a player, hopefully the more influence you have and the better decision-making process becomes between the two of you. But yeah, there's, there's several occasions this year where I've kind of just, you just, again, like I said before, you're trying to be the voice of reason. And although the shot that your player might see is possible, it's humanly possible. It, you might be able to pull it off one, one out of 10 or two out of 10, you know, your job there as the caddy is to say, well, hang on. Yeah, I know you can play that shot, but perhaps now isn't the right time. And I think I got a bit of, um, a bit of praise on TV for sort of convincing Herbie to chip out sideways in Ireland, but, but it was it was yeah. always the shot we were going to play. It wasn't it wasn't like Herbie was like, yeah, I want to go for the green with six iron and hook it over these trees. It was just we were discussing that option as the TV camera probably cut to us, and then they heard me saying, now nah, mate, come on, let's chip out sideways. But that was to be honest, we were going to chip it out sideways anyway. It's just that it was a, a very nice bit of editing off in the TV department that yeah. made me look like a bit of a hero. <laughs> uh, we'll we'll do the same. No, we'll we'll edit that bit out, and we'll make you look like the hero as well. <laughs> it's um like I say, you 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 make a lot of decisions and a lot of suggestions throughout a round of golf, and most of them, ninety nine percent of them, go unnoticed from you know the spectators or or the TV cameras or anything like that. You you're not trying to be the hero of the moment. You're just trying to do the right thing, and most of them, like I say, they happen so frequently. Within a within a round, and it might even just be aiming away from a flagger on a, on a on a certain hole because I know from the data that I've got that if you miss this green right, then you know eighty percent of the players haven't up and down it, and they've made bogey, and you're in a position in the round where you know you need to get something sort of going rather than you know going the other way, and just that little sort of um, suggestion of aiming a bit left of the flag, and it, it's how you word it and how you do it, and and that changes from player to player, so it's it's sometimes the most insignificant step in can, can make a huge difference in a round. Whereas other times it's like, come on, mate, we've got to chip it out from behind this tree. And, and they're a bit more straightforward. You know, they might be a bit more noticeable from the golfing public, but we're doing stuff you know, behind the scenes most of the, of the time that sort of, you know, goes unnoticed. And you mentioned there about the, um, you obviously that we've spoke about your preparation for normal tournaments, but I know you've caddied in a couple of major championships as well. So what's the, does preparation differ for that or is it just BAU or, and what are the nerves like as well? Because no players get, get nervous, don't they? And things, does a caddy get nervous or again, what, what, what are the feelings like? Where when you turn up at a major that it's, that it's a major, of course. I mean, I, I, you know, grew up watching the open championship. It was always my, my dream to play in one um, and get into to, to caddy 
at uh, at Carnoustie, my first one in 2019 was just huge. It was it was massive, and it was just a, a fluke the way we did it. That Jazz had the week off the week before we played Carnoustie, and we went there super early on like the Thursday or Friday of the week before. So we did loads of prep before the crowds arrived, and not really sort of massively in depth prep. We just played the golf course over and over again, um, and he kind of knew his way around pretty well by the time the tournament came about. But you know, I'm going to say no. The preparation isn't any different because you, you try and prepare the same for every tournament. Um, the nerves might be slightly different in the sense that the crowds are just massive. So you know, we played with we played with Jordan Spieth this year on on Saturday at the at the, um, the PGA Championship at Kiowa, and I'd be lying to you if I said that was just a normal round of golf. You know, like seeing yeah. up in you know, you know a small event on the Corn Ferry Tour. No disrespect to Corn Ferry, but. Um, to be honest, you, I certainly, I can't speak for other caddies, but I go very much into my, my own sort of zone. You know, I've got my yardage book, I've got my targets, and, and you're concentrating so hard on your own job that the crowd kind of gets a little bit blurry and kind of, um, yeah, you don't, you almost don't notice them until they shout something stupid out about your beard or about, you know, <laughs> some, 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 some comment that you sort of hear, or, or you hit your ball into the crowd and you've got to get amongst them and actually get them out of the way and try and get a yardage from some you know, random part of the golf course. But um, yeah, you certainly, your, your heart rate and your adrenaline and everything can, can be, can be pumping a bit harder in a major, but your job and your, your, your ideal is that you're still delivering the same information the same way, you know, in a, in a cool, calculated manner so that your player isn't picking up from your energy you know if you're like a nervous bunny running around going oh look at this we're in the masters you know isn't this great then your player's gonna <laughs> your player's gonna start freaking out as well so you're this trying to do it <laughs> exactly i mean that's you know that that's very much something that you will notice as a caddy the first time i saw tiger woods and you're kind of like oh my god this tiger but you're just trying to play it down it, it's like the old uh, only fools and horses where you you know play it cool trick play it cool and you just <laughs> stood there and i've always been one for for wearing sort of you know mirrored sunglasses and, and 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 hiding as much as you can not just from your player but just from everything just try and try and act cool as though you you know yeah this is just normal this you know, i'm always at majors it's dead easy but uh, yeah, your 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 palms are sweating and you and you're a bit nervous behind the scenes. But it's like anything; the more you do it, the more comfortable you are. You know, the more times you you, you the TV cameras are there and they and they and they're following your your player. And at the end of the day, you know that the cameras aren't on you; the cameras are on your player. So all you've got to do is just like like I said, not fall over, not drop the towel, not do anything stupid, and deliver your information as as coolly and calmly as you can. And then let your player do what he's, you know, what he's been practicing all his life to do. Do you know we we spoke to um, Chris Rice and he said that it's sort of he was like the same as you. He played and then he fell into like a, a role. And we seem to hear this a lot. Like there's no, it doesn't seem like there's a way into caddy, and it more just sort of happens. Do you find that was that to be true? Absolutely. Yeah. I I, I don't know. I don't think I know any caddies at all that kind of. You know, grew up as a kid and thought, oh, that I want to be that guy on TV that's you know carrying the bag around and putting the flag back in the hole. It's it's not it's not the glamorous part of the job at all. And and um, there seems to be probably more and more caddies now coming from a, a playing background just because they've got that understanding of the game perhaps and they've got that sort of you know ability to to know how to help a player. You know, I always remember what I wanted as a as a player myself, and I'm, it's quite easy then for me to. Put that onto you know into my new job but yeah there's there's very rarely you know i'm not i'm not talking to you know young kids who are aspiring to be caddies 
it's like everyone wants to be everyone wants to be a footballer. They don't want to be a you know a manager or this that and the other. So it's just it's one of those weird career paths that people come to it from all different angles. But um, I'm glad that I found it. I, I mean, I found it a little bit later than I would I probably would have liked. But I've hopefully got a few more years ahead of me to keep doing it. And did you did you find the transition difficult then from playing? Because I imagine to actually you mentioned briefly before, didn't you about stopping playing and turning to a caddy? Was that transition difficult for you, or was it easy? It, it actually was really, really easy in the sense that the, the, the things that I was always pretty good at as a player was the organisation and the sort of planning and the and the course knowledge and all that kind of. I, I was always pretty good as a player at knowing how to play good golf. I just wasn't very good at doing it. I wasn't very good at executing it. So like, yeah. Here's your mate. You, 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 <laughs> you hear people talking about, you know, you've got to have a target and you've got to focus and you've got to do all this. I, I was pretty good at all that. I was I was good at devising a game plan and, and staying focused and, and the mental aspect of it. Just physically, skill-wise, my ball didn't go close enough to the target that I wanted to aim at. So it's um it sounds a bit sort of dramatic, but it felt very much to me when I first started caddying for good players that, it felt like Tiger Woods on the PlayStation. It was just like, you know, they'd just aim at that tree down there with driver and then the ball would go there as opposed to going in the right shit where you had to chip it out sideways and <laughs> back it up the fairway. And, you know, I, I, spent, I spent years trying to, you know, my short game helped me and saved me, you know, shoot scores of, you know, whatever they were, not leading the tournaments, just scraping and trying to make cuts and stuff. And all of a sudden, you, you're directing a player to hit the same shots that you would have tried to as a player, but... The, the ball just goes closer to that target. So it it was a very easy transition for me in the sense that it felt, the game felt easier. It was just like, well, this is simple. You, you're aiming, I'm telling you where to aim it. You're hitting it there and then we get there and I'm telling you to aim it and you hit it there. And obviously you make more birdies because the ball's in play more and you walk off after a 64 and you think, well, that was easy. <laughs> that was far <laughs> easier far easy, far easy than any round of golf I ever played. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, thankfully, I, I found the transition pretty easy, and and you know it's a very fulfilling job for me because I feel like the more effort and the more sort of um, you know, prepared that, that I turn up at a golf tournament, then the more influence I can have to help my player play well that day. So yeah, it's it's very much as a golfer, it almost didn't matter how hard I worked, I didn't really get better, and that's probably a little bit um, self depreciating. You know, I, I played to a certain level, and I was I was you know half decent at the game, but. It didn't. I got to a point where the amount of effort I put in didn't um, result in, in in better performance. Whereas as a caddy, the harder I work, it seems to be that, that you know the better my my ability to bring information to the job you know helps my players you know, play well. So yeah, yeah, I found it. I don't want to say easy, but I found it rewarding and fulfilling. Yeah. Just a question then. Obviously, you're doing a bit of work on the PJ Tour now, and and you that's where you're going to be over the next season, of hopefully seasons to come as well. And um, who are you most impressed by on the tour? Guys that you've played with outside of obviously Herbie. Then who's who? Who is the who are the who are the most impressive guys on tour? I mean, week in week out, whenever you're playing with with people around the lead, you know, anyone that's in contention, they just any week guys are very very impressive. Um, as I said, we, we were lucky enough to play with Jordan Spieth at the PGA. and Yeah, playing with Jordan was just massively impressive just to see how he scrambled his way around the golf course. And he didn't have his best game, but he was still able to, um, you know, he chipped in early and then he, he a couple of you know, amazing sort of recovery shots. And I think any of the top players, when you see them playing well, it's really, really impressive. 
but that can go down as far as you know the guy that's leading the corn Ferry tour or the guy that's leading you know a, a tournament in, in 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 europe it's anyone that's playing well is impressive and if that coincides with it being you know we played with john ram in, in scotland this year um, if it happens to be a, a player that's at the top of the game and everyone knows then you, know, you can sort of pin that to that particular player but um yeah you, you you see a lot of impressive stuff out there but i will also say you see an awful lot of mediocrity and a lot of rubbish golf as well but they're just able to put that behind themselves and and, and manage to scramble out of four or just you know they play horrible and still shoot 72 and next thing they shot you know shut the lights out the following week and won so um there's a lot of impressive things about the best players in the world and it's not always about them playing well and, and winning tournaments it's just how well they conduct themselves you know week in week out and just a final question for me on the on the tour side. Obviously, there's there's a lot of discussions about the, the distance to beat and obviously how far the ball's going and things. So just to get your view on that, really, about what you're thinking, is it is distance really influencing the tour? Um it it is influencing the tour. It, it has influenced the tour and it, it's something that's it's always been about. You know, if you look back traditionally over the years, if you look at the best players that have been around, they've always hit it the furthest. You know, Jack Nicholas was a big hitter. Um, ben Hogan was a big hitter. Arnold Palmer was a big hitter. They, they all move the golf ball and hit it far relative to their peers. So it's no surprise that that now the top ten in the world generally are big hitters of the golf ball. You know, Greg Norman, Ian Woosnam. You go back over the, the years. If you hit the ball a long way and you can control it, you're going to benefit from that. You're going to you know you're going to find golf courses easier. All that's happened over the last probably 10, 15 years, certainly in my lifetime of playing golf, is more and more athletic sports people are playing professional golf now. You know, the likes of Bryson and Brooks Kepka and, and those guys, you know, they're, they're big, strong fellas. And I remember being in Asia um, at the CIMB Classic a, a few years ago and, and just noticing how much bigger all the PJ Tour players that were walking through the, you know, through the front door to come and play that week everybody seemed to be six foot five and above. And and if you're big, strong, and you've got long levers, then you're generally going to, you know, move the club head faster than the next guy. And club head speed equals hitting the ball further. And that makes golf courses easier. So I also think, certainly I grew up in the era of Nick Faldo and, and that sort of feeling of swinging the club within yourself. And, and, and it was all about hitting the ball straight and hitting the ball in play hit an iron off the tee and leave yourself a full wedge shot to the green, that kind of thing. Whereas now the math side of it, the sort of, you know, the, the statistics part has sort of proven that theory not to necessarily work. You know, you can hit an iron off the tee, but you're not guaranteed to hit it in the fairway. You can hit driver off the tee, you're not guaranteed to miss the fairway. And how people play the golf courses has probably changed a little bit as well. So that yeah. I'd argue that they're slightly bigger and stronger than they used to be they certainly take better care of themselves now. You know, they're in the gym, they've got physios, they've got dietitians, they've got, they're doing everything to eke every yard out of their golf swing. You know, they're stretching, they're doing this, that and the other and, and club head speed has increased, but I'm not a massive believer that the technology is to blame. You know, you can still give Bryson DeChambeau a wooden headed driver and he's going to hit it a long way. He probably won't mm -hmm. hit it as hard as he hits the current club that he's using because the club head's small and all the rest of it. It's, it's more the size of the equipment and the fact that that allows players to go at them harder that makes them all hit the ball a lot further these days. Now you're totally right there with the the, the full 
like squad teams, Andy, that are around these these players these days. And it's as you say, that's such a good point. Looking after themselves more than the equipment. That's it's it's they're both changing like simultaneously, aren't they? Like the equipment's getting better and both, which is obviously equal, and then now you're seeing 400 yard drives when it used to be 300 was a monster. Yeah, I think I think a lot's been made of the whole equipment thing, but you know, equipment doesn't just equate to what you've got in your hands when you're hitting it. If you look at the agronomy side of it and how much better golf courses are maintained now than they were back in the 1950s, you know, in the 1950s, they're whacking a small golf ball around with a piece of wood onto fairways that probably re- resemble a semi rough now. You know, mm. the, the greens weren't as fast and this, that and the other. So everything has changed and and for want of a better word, improved. And that's, you've only got to look at the parallels in every other sport. You know, the days of guys coming off at halftime on a football match and sucking on half an orange and having a cigarette before they go out and kick it around <laughs> for the second half. You know, you're not playing with leather cases and this, that and the other. You know, every sport has evolved. Wooden tennis rackets, no one could serve it, at, you know, 150 mile an hour or whatever they are nowadays. It's... People generally don't like change and they don't like things evolving too fast. But I think the history of every sport, no matter what it is, has seen an improvement. And, and you know, with all the technology and everything else and, and like I say, agronomy and and, and nu- nutrition and everything that goes into it, you know, golf's not going to be away from that. Unless you, you, you make everyone use a wooden-headed driver and you know, short shafts and this, that and the other. But... Like I say, you can't tell me that Brooks Kepka wouldn't hit the ball, you know, as far if not further than everybody else twenty years ago, just by the shape of him. If you, if you pin back the longest, you're going to pin back the shortest. Everyone's going to go backwards, Andy. So there's, it's kneecapping everyone, and it's like there's no point. Yeah, exactly. I think it was interesting. I think was it last year that Matt Fitzpatrick sort of came off the wrong side of a of an interview and. He'd kind of said that he didn't think it was it was skillful to hit the ball a long way, and then Bryson yeah. came out and kind of criticised that. But if you notice, in the last twelve months or so since that that comment, you know Matt Fitz has has, has openly admitted that he's working harder in the gym and he's doing this, that, and the other, and he's never yeah. going to hit it as far as Bryson DeChambeau does. He's not he's not going to hit it as far as Brooks Kepka does, but he'll hit it further than Matt Fitzpatrick did five years ago because he'll continue you know, to get stronger and to get fitter and to do all those things and, and technically just find a way of, of, of making his levers move the, the golf club faster. But he'll always have a straighter accuracy and, and be better with his irons and this, that and the other than the guy who smashes it, you know, with 125 mile an hour club head speed. So the nice thing about the game is it still has a huge part of, of hitting the ball straight and, and being able to control your distances and that kind of thing. Like we're going to Bermuda next week. My tournament prep tells me that, you know, the last two winners there Bre- uh, was um, Brian Gay. And I think it was Brendan, Brendan Todd or Brendan Steele, you know, guys who don't hit it that far, but they hit it very straight. So you'll still get the odd golf course week in, week out. Valderrama is a, a perfect example where yeah, yeah. you bombers, it just doesn't suit them. But the majority of the golf courses now that they, they, they move to these sort of longer golf courses that, that do suit the bombers more. And that's why, you know, the, the sort of distance that people hit it becomes more of a, more of an issue. And it's, let's face it, it's commentators and it's, you know, it's so-called experts who are, who are talking about golf who, who generally have the problem with it. Your average golfer on the street doesn't hit it too far. He's not hitting his, you know, his tailor-made driver now, 30 yards further than his, you know, his, his driver from 10 years ago. That's just what the best players are doing. And that's because they're doing whatever they can in their power to hit the ball further. Yeah. It should be down to the PGA Tour then, shouldn't it? To look at Valderamas and look at these tight courses and, and mix it up. 
Because you see when they go to like uh, like the uh, the PGA and different things where the courses are harder, it doesn't suit the bombers, and it's like they just need to put more of that in there, and, and it'll show them that it's not the equipment only and other people. Yeah, Valderrama is very very. It's very unique. It, it's a golf course where, like anyone that's played a lot in Spain and Portugal, like you'll you'll play a lot of courses in Spain where there's trees. Just it would appear to be in your way. Valderrama is one of those golf courses you just yeah. you can't hit driver down the first and second holes and just bomb away because you'll end up behind a tree. So that's a very unique golf course in the sense that they've taken driver out of everybody's hand, not just the not just the bombers. You know, you have to hit to specific points on the golf course, but. A lot of courses, you know, still do that in in, in the states. You'll just do it with thick rough and water hazards and that kind of thing. But um, yeah, it's it's a it's a rare occasion where you've got guys not hitting a lot of drivers. Uh, Valderrama is definitely one of them. The thing is, is there's fewer and fewer of those type golf courses on on tour, uh, any tour in the world. I remember when I carried out in Asia, there was there was the odd course here and there where you just knew there was a course, um, Delhi Golf Club in in, in India. And you knew the straightest player in the field would win there, you know, because you just literally you were hitting down corridors of, of bushes, and as soon as the big hitters played there, they'd lose golf balls. So you'd always have short hitters winning that tournament. But it's you know we've been talking about it for the last 10, 15 years that you know you've got to hit it further, you've got to swing it faster, you've got to be able to move your golf ball because that's where the game was going. I think it's just it's more sexy on TV to see Bryson smashing a you know four hundred yard drive than it is watching. You know, someone Nick Faldo stand there and hit a, a flush two iron down the middle of a tight fairway. It's just it's sexier to hit big booming drives like it is to watch, you know, aces in in tennis and you know, Formula it, One yeah. cars go faster. Again, it's like evolution of the sport. You've just got to look at uh, Bryson at the bail trying to drive the par five. You know, like everyone's geared up for that, and it's just entertainment, isn't it? You want to see that. That's the that's the positive to it. That's it. That's it. It's. I think it's very easy to look at. The, the distance debate and see it as a negative but the fact is it, it's not new it's always been around and it, it's just it is what it is and, and if you don't like it then you've got to take up another sport or you've got to find a way of hitting the ball further simple as that yeah. that's exactly it. and how, how aware have you got to be as that then as, as a caddy in the communication with your player then just on obviously because if they're getting an extra one yard extra two yards out of things you've got to be on the ball with that haven't you yeah i mean I, i've i've been very very fortunate um i've worked for I've worked for some of the biggest hitters in the world so far. I worked for Lucas and then I worked for Kurt Kitayama, American kid who just hits it miles. I worked for Johannes Veerman last year who hits the ball miles. It's just, that's what you see out on tour day in, day out. You see more and more kids coming out. We've got, you know, it used to be that 120 mile an hour club head speed was just like insane. Whereas now that's kind of the normal. And the guys who really shift it are 125, you know, upwards. And, and it's just each year, each year, you know, a couple of the old boys sort of fall off tour and they're replaced by, you know, a 20-year-old who swings at 130 mile an hour and, and seems to be jumping in midair as he hits it. And that's just that's just the evolving of the game. There's still there's still the old boys who can plod their way around the golf course, but they get fewer and fewer weeks where they can actually, you know, feature on the leaderboard because the courses just come down to, you know, I'm not a big... I'm not criticising it when I talk that way. I just, I made a very conscious decision when I started caddying that, all right, if I'm going to work for a boy, he needs to be able to bomb it 300 yards through the air and be able to, you know, put the tits off it when he gets on the green. And that's, that's <laughs> as a caddy, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for, right, how far does my boy hit it and how good is he at putting? And if he ticks those two boxes, then I can try and fill in the rest. So More, yeah, ent- more entertainment for you as well, isn't it? <laughs> you're watching them. 
it's a lot easier when you when you're walking down onto a par five and you're the last one to hit to the green and you're looking at you know is this a six iron or a seven iron boss you know it's a lot easier playing par fives that way i yeah. i didn't hit it very far in my career um and i'll tell you now those par fives are a damn sight harder when you're hitting three wood into them or you're trying to you know lay it up and hit a wedge shot into them so it's just again the maths back to all of these theories the closer you can get to the greens whether it be drivable par fours or par fives Again, you know, I grew up in the era where you, if you couldn't reach a par five, you laid it back to 100 yards so that you had a full wedge in, and it's just wrong. It's just all all of those things that I grew up, you know, thinking about. They've now been superseded and and, and proven wrong by statisticians, by you know, um, science. So it's just yeah. this better way of playing golf now. And they've you see more bombers now because they're hitting driver on more holes. They're not trying yeah. to thread it down mm-hmm. that fairway with iron. And hit seven irons of the green, then I just hit and drive as close as they can and it you know, hit a lob wedge out the rough, you can still get it on the green that way. Yeah. It's great that I'm just imagining there it's someone phoning you, Nick, you got a job here? Is it how far is he at it? So two eighteen hundred tell him to fuck off. <laughs> get him in the gym, tell him to come back next year. Yeah, come back when he's beefed up. <laughs> I'm shooting myself in the foot now, aren't I? I'll get I'll get fired next week and I'll be looking for someone and all the shortages will be knocking on my door trying to give me a job. <laughs> Brian Gay, he'll be on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's a weird one because it's like you know you look at some of the players out there, like you know, Wilco, Neenarber, and all these boys. It's not stopping. Oh, yeah. the, the next generation who are coming through, the Hoy guards in Europe. I'm, I'm mentioning European names now just because you know we're over here, and it, and it again that that isn't going to stop anytime soon. You can make the drivers shorter. You can make you can make them forty six inches. Wilco Nienaub is still going to hit a 46-inch long driver further than you and I are. That's just his genetics and how he swings the golf club. So you can make the club shorter, you can make the ball softer, you can do whatever the hell you want. The big hitters are still going to you know, hit the ball further than everybody else and they have an advantage. That's it. Brilliant stuff. Yeah, well, look, Nick, obviously, thanks a lot for taking the time to speak to us. Mate, we appreciate it. Unbelievable show. Um it's been yeah. great. Are you still playing? We can get a game next time you're back over, or are you hung the clubs up or what? I, I did. I actually bought a set of clubs in America earlier in the year. I bought an old set of Ping I2 Beryllium Copper Pings, which are like it's the first set of clubs I ever bought as a as a junior golfer. Like my first brand new set of clubs when I was like, I don't know, 16, 17. And I bought a, a set of those and sort of dug them out and went out and played a bit of golf in, in Houston, Texas this year. And I got a little bit of the juices flowing again. I thought, oh, I, you know, maybe I'll get a bit keen and practice again. But I was pretty average. And, you know, I'm losing golf balls left, right and centre. It, it's hard to play badly when all you see on your nine to five job is boys striping it and hitting it 320 yards down the middle of the fairway. It's it's really sort of soul destroying when you step up and give it your give it the biggie and you hit it like 240 through the air. So it's, um, yeah, I'll play a little bit here and there. I, I still love the game, but I just love it from a different angle now. I love I love it from standing over a golf bag and and you know being able to help someone else hit great shots rather than me hitting them myself. I can still chip, I can still put, I can still do a few things like that, but I'll leave it to the professionals to uh, to hit the really good shots. Yeah. You do seem genuinely happy, do you know what I mean? And I think anyone listening to this, if they could get into caddying and they're taking your sort of view on it, it's it's something to really relish and, and get into if if the opportunity did come along. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, I get inundated with messages from, from, from some people I know, but mainly people I've, I've got no idea, never met them before. And they're saying, oh, yeah, it looks really good fun. And I'd love to get into caddy and what's your advice? And it's just, <laughs> I might be sort of um, 
I might be not a true reflection. It, it's a hard job. It's a really hard job. And there's yeah. while you see the, you know, the Michael Grellers and the and the you know the, the top sort of caddies in the world make a great living and they and they really have you know seem to live like a rock and rock and roll lifestyle, flying around in private jets and this that and the other. The other side of it is you know you're only making money if your player makes money. And if your player is playing badly and losing his card and missing cuts and you're making zero cash at all, and it's there's a very sort of dark side to it and a, and, a, and a hard side to it where a lot of caddies don't enjoy it, and they you know they come they come into the, the job and they, they leave pretty quickly or or guys who've been doing it for years they drift away from it because it's it's financially pretty hard to do. But I've been very very fortunate that I've managed to work with some good players so far and we've had some good success. And yeah, I mean if you don't enjoy that then then you're in the wrong job. And it's, you know, like I said to you before, I, I always aspired to to play at the Open Championship and walk down the 18th fairway with a big crowd and being able to do that, carrying someone else's bag is like the next best thing. So it's, yeah, I'm kind of living my golfing dreams vicariously through through other players. And thankfully they're a lot better than I was. So we get to see some, <laughs> you know, see some cool stuff and walk down some cool fairways. Yeah, Boss. definitely. Well, if, if the opportunity ever 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 comes about, mate, and you and you're local, give us a shout. We'd love to have a game with you. Um, I mean, I meet you in person. It'd be good. And obviously, we wish you the the best of luck for for the rest of the season with here. We hope it's obviously very successful. You get into that top fifty and getting the WGCs and all the big events. We'll be we'll be keeping a lookout for you. Yeah, perfect. Thanks, boys. Yeah, I'll bring my club over and I'll come and lose some golf balls with you. Belter. We yeah, love that. We do love that. <laughs> well, thanks for your time, mate. Appreciate Cheers, it. Mate. No worries. Thanks, fellas. Yes. Bye bye.